Good day. My name is James Langridge and I am the president of the British American Business Council Los Angeles and I am delighted to be back today with another podcast and today we are talking about the future of the business travel industry. Um, it's a huge industry both domestic and international and we have some wonderful guests on the line today who have fabulous contributions to the conversations. We have Jonathan Cowley, Vice President of Corniche Travel, Fiona Francois, Chief of Staff and EVP of Global Operations from InvestCloud, and we have our wonderful Professor Dr. David Warburton back on the line to contribute to the conversation. Um, would you mind just introducing yourselves briefly, everybody? Uh, let's start with you, Fiona. Thank you, James. Um, yeah, as James said, my name is Fiona Francois. I am Chief of Staff and um, EVP of Global Sales for InvestCloud. We are a um, digital integrated um, technology provider for financial institutions, and uh, we have offices uh, spread across the globe. Thank you, Jonathan. James, good afternoon. Um, so yeah, Jonathan Cowley, um, longtime friend of the British American Business Council. Uh, in fact, I think since 2003 when I first came over here. I'm currently the Vice President of Sales and Client Services for Corniche Travel, which is a West Hollywood based travel agency. We've been around for 32 years. Uh, and prior to that, um, I was with Air New Zealand and British Airways for more years than I'd like to mention. Um, so I have a good understanding of, of what's going on both from the travel management side, but also from the airline side of the business too. Thank you, Jonathan. A good afternoon, Professor Warburton. How are you today? Hi guys, this is David Warburton. I'm a professor of pediatrics and surgery and other things at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and USC. And I also do quite a bit in the global health area, particularly in uh, Mongolia and Africa. So we're uh, looking forward to this, having a chat with you. Fantastic, and I, I would like to also add that um, Fiona Francois is also former president of the British American Business Council, Los Angeles. So we're delighted to have you all on today. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, Fiona, in your role, uh, your job, you have many uh, business locations that you mentioned. On average, on an average month, before everything, before the COVID-19 came in, how often were you traveling? And were you flying? Were you driving? How much of your time was spent in the air? I would probably say about 50% of my time is, is spent traveling, uh, be it local, just up to San Francisco for the day. I'm, I'm obviously based in LA or more broadly, domestically, very often going over to the East Coast, very regularly in New York, um, but also to London. We have an office in Toronto, Canada. Um, we've got an office in India and we're really starting to develop our business um, in the Asia Pacific re region. So it's not unusual to be going to Australia or Singapore and um, those regions as well. So yeah, lots of time uh, traveling and I pretty much 100% travel by air. Wonderful. So obviously it's going to sound like a silly question, but it's obviously you've been impacted by this. Currently, what are you, what are you doing to get around the fact that you can't be traveling by air right now? I'm guessing you're relying on video conferencing. How, how are you integrating that into your daily life at the moment? Um, well, so a couple of things. So my, my role at the, at the firm focuses on, on, on two different sides of things. One is 
very much taken care of, um, you know, who we are as a company and our people and our operations and, and that kind of thing. And the other side of it is is running our global sales operations. So one's quite internally focused and one's quite externally focused. Um, but really, we're quite fortunate that we've always, we were born a digital company. We've always been a digital company. And being able to transition to leveraging the technology that we have available to us through, you know, all these different applications available now for video conferencing, we've made, we've been able to transition um, relatively easily. Um, certainly internally, um, you know, the teams are very used to using these pieces of equipment and, um, and getting online and talking. And we've even done things with the team, like we've created within our video conferencing suite, we've created like coffee shops where people can just, you know, log in if they want to and see if anyone else is hanging out at the coffee shop so they can have a chat if if they're feeling you know isolated at all or anything like that so we're trying to you know leverage the technology but at the same time make it as personal and similar to to um our usual interactions as possible um but then on the on the sales side of things obviously um you know for me as as a as a head of sales there's nothing quite like that personal interaction and that personal relate and um, sitting down with your clients or your prospects and, and having, you know, a good one-on-one -on -one conversation or, or in a group environment. And so we have had to transition really to understanding how we can come across as, as well as polished, you know, to really have empathy as well in that sales process with our clients um, through a technology medium. Um, and so all we're doing really is, is leveraging different uh, methods. We're integrating uh, numerous different applications and tools um, to enable us to really convey our points as well as possible. I think the one thing that goes in our favor, frankly, right now is everyone's in the same boat. So it, it's not like we are struggling with not being able to travel whilst our clients are gallivanting all over the place. We're kind of all in it together. And, um, and so certainly there's a lot of, um, understanding um, across the piece, you know, uh, that everyone is, is adjusting to life. And, you know, if a, a child runs in the background whilst you're having a meeting or something like that, people, people get it and they're a bit more patient. But I would just say certainly from a kind of externally focused place, leveraging technology, being very, very clear on your agenda, um, making sure that you know, your, your, your thoughts are well processed and, and rehearsing prior are, are all good tips when you're not, I would do those things anyway for a face-to-face -face meeting, but they become even more important when you, when you lose that dynamic and are purely relying on technology. Thank you. That's a wonderful answer. And I totally relate. I'm in a business where um, we really need to be in front of people. Uh, that, that personal touch, that being in front of someone has been so important in, in my industry and in any sales role I've ever had. And so it, it really is an adjustment. Uh, whilst we have multiple different platforms of technology that we can utilize to communicate with other people, it is going to be a real change, I think, down the road. There is going to be a new normal. And I don't know what that is right now. <clears throat> we, we're not sure, you know, are we ever going to have as many in-person meetings again? Fiona, uh, and Jonathan, and bringing you in this on this as well, you know, we're so heavily dependent on air travel in, in the roles that you have, certainly. 
how is that going to change going forwards? Um, Fiona, do you think you will be in the air as much again when everything settles down, or do you think we're going we're to switch more to uh, the digital platform? I guess there's an economic amount and value to it as well by doing that. Um, and Jonathan, just question for you, secondary on top of that. How are you in the travel industry going to attract customers to get back in the air? So Fiona first, please. Um, so, well, I think there's, there's, a couple, there's a couple of things on, on that question. I, I definitely think that we will just culturally adjust to this being increasingly um, a, a method. And also, I think through this period of time, we will find ways to make this method increasingly um, successful and we'll share best practice and ideas of how to leverage it. And, and so I do think that there will be a, a reduction in, in business associated travel because people can be effective through these, these new mediums. And they're not new so much as they've been around for a while, but people that wouldn't have leveraged them in the past have now become comfortable with them. Um, that doesn't take away from the point that I made earlier and, and you echo James that I, I still am an absolutely strong believer in, um, in a, certainly in the sales role and also with my teams, you know, I want to see my team in London. I want to see my team in Toronto and, and spend time with them. Um, but in terms of like what the future looks like, I think part of the, the question is how long does recovery take? In, in this market. So there's one thing about when, you know, when people start moving around again and you can get on a plane again and go see people. But there's a broader question about, you know, how long it takes markets to recover and, and, and businesses to, to, you know, kind of get back on their feet again. And also, you know, for a lot of companies, there's this, they will see this huge, huge decrease in spend over these next few um, months as it pertains to their, their travel expenses and everything that goes with that, you know, not just the travel, but the meals and the entertainment and that whole thing. And I think for some people it will be challenging to, um, to battle some of those conversations, whether it be with the, you know, their boards or their CFOs or whoever about bringing back some of that value of, of, of getting, um, getting back in the air or on the train or whatever it might be. So I, I think that, um, there will be a reduction, but I, I definitely don't think that business travel is, is disappearing. I think we'll be back in the skies before you know it. And I know lots of people, certainly in my industry, frankly, are addicted to it, which I'm sure will be music to Jonathan's ears. I love it. And I think I agree with you as well, Fiona. Jonathan, good afternoon. Good what afternoon. Your- so... Well, just to sort of give everybody a sort of brief overview where the, the airlines are at now. So um, we, got, uh, we got involved with the airlines quite in the early stages of, of COVID-19, which was related to, uh, we have uh, a number of um, educational establishments that we manage travel for. Um, and as I'm sure all of you saw in the news, um, a lot of them have um, overseas international programs. Um, so they had students uh, in programs in China, in Europe, um, basically all around the globe. And so we, we got involved very early on in repatriating uh, students back from uh, these countries. Um, and initially, it was relatively simple, whereby we simply just rebooked um, students and, and brought them home. 
Um, but then it got a little bit more complex, as I'm sure that everybody knows now. Um, the U.S. has now designated specific airports that people can return to um, if they're coming from overseas. Um, LAX is one of them. Uh, we've got San Francisco up the road, Seattle. Um, and basically, those airports have the facilities in place with the CDC uh, to ensure that returning um, citizens are, are given a, um, a test on arrival. Uh, they're also required to fill out some paperwork. Um, but that required us to very quickly adapt um, so that we had to, although we, re we had rebooked a number of people, we had to rebook them again uh, because they could only enter the country at these specific airports. Um, and just to give you an idea now, I don't know if anybody has seen the pictures online, uh, a number of the newspapers, uh, the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, etc., posting pictures of all the British Airways aircraft that are parked up in the UK. Um, I think one of the sort of the most um, devastating pictures was at Bournemouth Airport, where they had, uh, I can't even tell you how many of their A320s and A321s all parked up. Uh, it's a very, very si sad sight to see. And um, having been an ex-British Airways employee, obviously, um, you know, it's very sad to see. But also my wife uh, works for British Airways here in Los Angeles. Um, so she is, is seeing the direct impact uh, that's having on, on, on her operation at LAX. And in fact, um, British Airways has been reducing their operation, although they are still operating to LAX. Um, they are operate, they're currently operating a freighter service, so a 787, one of their passenger aircraft, they're still doing a daily freighter service, uh, and then next week they'll be returning to, to doing passenger flights again uh, on a daily basis. But obviously this is being reviewed uh, on a daily basis, and, and, a, and they're adopting a different uh, frequency based on, on demand. Uh, today the, the government um, announced that they had allocated uh, £75 million to support flights and the airlines to bring uh, British citizens back to the UK. Um, obviously, the ideal is they want to use commercial flights, um, but in some cases, that's no longer viable. Um, I think uh, today, EasyJet announced they were grounding their entire fleet of 344 aircraft um, for at least the next two months. Um, so definitely, there is a, a reduction in capacity. Um, British Airways, in fact, themselves have reduced the number of airports that they fly to in the US. Um, and you're seeing domestically some, some significant reductions in impact by the, the large US carriers. So that really was just a, a, a quick, or maybe not so quick, overview of what's going on um, with the airlines. But in response to your question, James, you know, how are we going to get people back flying? Um, well, I think the airlines, obviously, um, it's going to be a case of once um, it's deemed that destinations are, are, are safe for people to fly to. So as you know, right now, uh, the president has restricted certain countries from flying into the US. Um, so obviously, until that is deemed a safe destination, we're not going to see aircraft coming back. Um, and with regard to what the domestic carriers are doing here, um, one example is Delta. Delta has been very, very proactive with um, recording videos and actually giving people an update on, on what they now call Delta Clean. Um, so what they're doing is, starting from the uh, beginning of next month, all of their domestic aircraft will undergo um, fogging inside the aircraft overnight. Um, and before every flight, 
there will be an extensive uh, cleaning operation. Um, in the past, we found that um, the aircraft used to be turned around very, very quickly, uh, but now um, they're going to require uh, they're going to require these deep cleans, as they call it. Um, and then uh, they'll continue in early May. Um, that it says that every single aircraft they'll be using a new disinfectant. It is very safe to breathe. Um, and it's what hospitals and restaurants already use. Um, but the idea is they want to give the customers some confidence that when you do start getting back on planes, they're going to be very, very squeaky clean. Thanks, Jonathan. So in your opinion, once, once this starts to turn around, um, there's going to be some new measures in place. There's going to be, once again, a new normal that uh, safety policies that every airline is going to have to adhere to. But how are they going? There's going to be a lot of competition. That can only be a good thing, I guess. But how, what do you think will be some of the strategies and tactics that they use to get people to use one airline over another? Well, certainly we have started seeing um, some very aggressive pricing by airlines later in the year. Um, so we are definitely seeing that a few of them are banking on the situation um, improving towards the end of the year at the latest. Um, so they are offering these, these very aggressive promotional fares. Um, and also the other thing is, which is very good for the consumer, is that the airlines appreciate that people, you know, don't want to commit to booking flights and then be left holding the baby. Um, so airlines, uh, most of the airlines now, are coming up with these very flexible policies whereby uh, the change fees are waived on, on any fare that you have. Um, so even if you've bought uh, what they call the basic economy fares, you're able to, you're able to change those without any penalty. Um, but what they are doing is the airlines are not necessarily refunding your ticket. So if the ticket is a non-refundable ticket, they'll waive the cancellation or change fee, but you will get a credit, uh, which you need to use in most cases by the end of the year. Um, so there is definitely a lot more flexibility. Um, I know that a couple of the airlines later in the year are offering very good uh, upgrade fees. So people who bought their economy tickets, they're trying to get people to upgrade into the higher cabins because obviously what that then does is releases capacity in the economy uh, cabin, allowing them to sell more seats. Um, and I think that's just the beginning, James. I think it's still a little early. Um, but some airlines have kind of run with it and have decided to start offering these uh, special uh, deals right now. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, I got to believe as well. I mean, it, I know it's too early to say, and you hit the nail on the head, but people who are looking to take a holiday, a summer vacation with their family, uh, I would imagine with the hotels will be scrambling as well to book uh, people to come to them over the others as well. So I, I can imagine on the back end of this, there's going to be some unbelievable uh, package deals for families to go on vacation at different yeah. places. And, and James, if I could just add, I mean, we are seeing, uh, because we, we don't only manage co corporate travel, we also have a, a, a large leisure uh, department. And we're also seeing that, you know, obviously um, the cruise lines, as, as we can appreciate, have been, have been um, impacted um, very heavily because people have, have cancelled their trips. In fact, most of the cruise lines have uh, proactively suspended their operations. Uh, you know, for example, Disney, I know it's through the end of April, uh, they've suspended their services. Um, Carnival Cruise Lines through uh, middle of May. 
Um, so a number of them have proactively cancelled their, their operations. But what they are doing, very similar to the airlines, they are also allowing people basically to bank um, their, their credit. Um, and just as one example, um, I think it's Norwegian uh, Cruise Lines, um, what they're saying is, look, if, if you were booked to travel between uh, now and, and the middle of May, um, we'll give you a full refund. Um, but if you don't, we'll give you 125% credit, uh, which you can then use for a later cruise. So, so definitely the cruise lines are, are offering people incentives to, to keep the money uh, with them and then hopefully rebook, rebook on them and, um, and have you know, access to, to more money than they had when they originally booked. Fabulous. Um, Dr. Warburton, um, bringing you in on the conversation, just from a, from a, from a, just a general health side of things, I, just from your own experience, what are we going to see um, new policies coming in, health and safety, anything that comes to mind that you think that we will start to see us in, the, in the travel industry, in hotels, uh, restaurants, what kind of new policies do you think they're going to put in place that we need to be aware of? Well, I think it's something that needs to be thought about very carefully. I mean, at the present time, um, we're up to about 140,000 known cases in uh, the US. That was yesterday's number. And uh, they're mostly, they're heavily concentrated in New York State and California. Um, I, I think the issue of, of, of uh, getting people to do social distancing and doing the cleansing is the thing that's the, uh, the the challenge now. I mean, actually, I flew back from um, Dallas about 10 days ago, and uh, the, the place was empty, and there was about six people on the plane, and we were all in first class. So I don't know that that was very smart, but that was how it was. So but I, these kind of strategies, it's things that the airlines are going to have to, th have to think about, and I think that they may be able to compete on the issue of, of, of the cleanliness and the, the, that benefit. Um, yeah, so I think that those are things that need to be considered. And the other thing, of course, is that you know this uh, epidemic will get under control when there's enough herd immunity so that, you know, 70% of people have immunity to it, either natural immunity or induced immunity. But I did see somewhere in, in a... In a from the, from the British National Health Service, they're now speculating that as many as half of the people in Britain may have caught it already. And certainly Prince Charles had it, and he's supposed to be now non-infectious. So, um, I mean, that was, that was the strategy in the UK to begin with, to let everybody just catch it, you know, until they thought about how much that was going to cost in terms of piles of bodies and uh, ventilators and things. So I think it's a compli it's complicated. Yeah, so I didn't mean to cut you off, but that's no, right. It's um, do you think England is starting to get its arms around it, David? Well, from what I read and what I hear, um, and what people are chatting about, it looks like for the most part, yeah, England is is getting its arms around it. I mean, obviously, it's very hard for young people to obey these kind of isolation things because they want to. They want to see each other and so on. But, uh, and the other thing is, you know, England is a small place. <laughs> there isn't a lot of place to isolate, actually. You know. I agree with you. Jonathan, 
in, in when we come back into travel and we're on air, are we going, do you think the, the term social distancing, do you think that's a term that's going to stay with us and now thrive in the travel industry and people are going to expect more space? Are people going to be willing to pay more money to be separated further apart from one another? What do you think the airlines are going to do to try and make everybody happy and encourage people to feel safe about getting on a plane, getting on a cruise ship, going forward? That's that's a really interesting uh, question, James, because, yeah, I, I have a friend who asked me the same question last night, and he told me that uh, he most certainly now would be happy to pay for first class when he goes to London uh, because he obviously then is in his own little uh, cocoon. Um, but he also, you know, was realistic that when he starts traveling again, he's going to want some sort of, not guarantee, but some sort of assurance that um, we have have this under control to a degree. Um, as I said to you again, you know, I'm pretty certain that once we do start um, seeing an increase in international operations, it will be to countries that, that the president is not doesn't deem a hotspot. Um, and I think that that, you know, in the developed world is, is going to be um, hopefully in the future relatively easy to, to be able to pinpoint. But of course, where that becomes a challenge is when airlines are operating to third world countries who A, don't have the infrastructure or the resources to be able to, to get this under control. Um, but certainly, you know, the airlines, I think that the fact that they have all, um, to a, a large degree, implemented these strict cleaning procedures, um, I think there will still be people that want to, um, and they do have the option of buying a row of seats, for example, for those of you who, who fly Air New Zealand, which, as we know, sadly, um, they had announced they were going to stop flying in October uh, to the UK, but they are, are also suspending operations um, based on, on the current COVID-19 situation. Um, but you could then buy yourself a row of seats if you wanted to, uh, to be by yourself. Um, but I think from an airline perspective, we've got to remember that um, in order for an airline to, or an aircraft to operate and, and actually be profitable, then they've got to sell a certain amount of seats. Um, so if we go to a position now where we can't sell the middle seats uh, on aircraft, um, I think airlines would start battling to, to make profit on these flights. And, and in, in the worst case scenario, they'd then have to start charging higher prices for the consumer. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's something that the airlines definitely, I know, are looking at. Um, but it's, there's no sort of um, plan or blueprint to move forward. Um, but right now, yes, uh, aircraft that are operating, a number of the airlines have implemented uh, social distancing requirements. Um, except on Professor Warburton's flight, where they're all seated together in first class. Um, but a lot of these airlines are now uh, basically only seating every other row um, or, or not seating people in the middle seat, etc., to, to help people have that distance. Well, I've also seen that uh, some of the private airlines, the charter airlines, are now advertising their product as a, as a way of avoiding other people. So I think but, that it's a point of marketing that, you know, people might be responsive to. Yes, you're you're right, and I think I think the other thing is is so so to add to your point, um, one of our partners is a company called JSX, um, who operate uh, what I would call semi-private flights. Um, so basically, they operate um, private jets on a number of destinations. They fly from LA to Vegas, for example, or LA to Phoenix, 
uh, and you're sharing a, a private jet with, with less people. So they've seen a, a, a significant increase in demand on, on the routes they operate. And one other thing which is, is quite interesting is that we have seen, uh, we have had requests for uh, VIP meet and greets at the airport. So as I'm sure most of you know, um, there is a uh, service at LAX um, called the Private Suites. Uh, and that basically was a um, service that was brought together um, very similar to what they have in the UK at Heathrow, the Windsor Suites, which is uh, based in Terminal 5. And the Windsor Suites was originally, the concept was for heads of state, uh, government officials, etc., both foreign and, and UK that were traveling. So they'd have a private area to be processed. Uh, well, obviously, they realized that a large part of the year that wasn't being utilized. So they basically sold this product to people who wanted to, to pay. They could have a private um, immigration and um, security service, um, either departing or arriving at Heathrow. Um, so private suites uh, sort of came from that concept. And we now have LA, at LAX this private suites option. Uh, where you can basically uh, go through a private um, entrance, which is on the other side of the airport. So, A, you don't have to deal with, well, when there is normally congestion at LAX, you don't have to deal with that. And secondly, you, you are being processed through the TSA or on the way back through CBP with just you and your party. You won't see anybody else with you. So, that we've seen a huge uh, increase from especially our entertainment customers that are, are still traveling, um, asking to, to utilize that service. And then in the UK, uh, we utilize a service called a Diamond Air International. And they actually provide, again, a VIP meet and greet service. And uh, we've been utilizing them on the other end as well, um, because people want to have that, you know, expedited um, departure process where they can avoid being in a mass of people. So, so that's another thing which I think is going to definitely grow uh, once travel starts coming back. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's been quite common actually in the uh, in the former Soviet bloc and and also in Africa in certain countries. Um, maybe not a separate terminal, but certainly a different in, separate entrance and a VIP room and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I had a, I had a quick question. I'm not really sure if it's really for for Jonathan or as much or maybe it's for. Um, Professor Warburton, but I'm interested in, we, we hear a lot locally about what's happening domestically. Obviously, everybody on this call is also interested in what's happening in the UK as well. But, you know, obviously, governments are, are taking their own response. I'm interested in how that might impact um, international travel. And are we going to be kind of at the mercy of whoever moves the slowest, really? And as restrictions start getting lifted, there still is going to be an impact in other areas where, you know, potentially um, it could be a long time before we, we're going globetrotting again. And I don't know, Jonathan, are the, are the airlines really, you know, looking closely at what, what, what action is being taken by the different um, jurisdictions in which they operate? Yes. So I, I, I think, you know, Fiona, I'll let Professor Warburton um, answer from, from the health side, but I think from the airline side, certainly, um, we know that um, hotspots, um, as we keep calling them, or I keep calling them, um, a lot of the airlines stop operating there relatively quickly. So China, Hong Kong, 
we saw all of the major carriers um, start uh, or stop operations there relatively early. Uh, and then also when Italy became a hotspot, we saw that, uh, you know, most of the major carriers stop, stopped operating there. However, you know, airlines like British Airways, EasyJet still operated because they wanted British nationals to have the ability to get home. Um, but obviously an, another key factor is the safety of the, of the crews. Um, they want to make sure that their pilots and yeah. flight attendants are all uh, being, you know, kept safe too. So I think that has also been a, a major consideration. So if it's deemed that it's not safe for passengers to fly to a destination, then I'm pretty certain the airline's going to say, well, it's not safe to send our, our crews there either. Um, so I think that is, again, going to have a huge impact once we see um, air travel um, increasing again, that you know that the airlines will be doing risk assessments on on all the flight or the airports they fly to, uh, to deem whether or not they're safe for both the the passengers and and cabin crew. I think one of the un- interesting things to think about is how countries are going to undo these restrictions. I'll give you an example. I mean, Mongolia is a vast country, but it's only got three million people in it. And all, they, they shut their borders very early back in January uh, because they have a long border with China. And uh, they only got 11 cases imported to the country. So all the, all the COVID in their country came from abroad and it was mostly either foreigners, like French people, coming via Moscow or it was uh, <clears throat> Mongolians being repatriated. And then they had about 500 contacts of those people and then they had to quarantine all of them but the the rest of their population seems to be pretty much okay but then the question is how do you undo that so if you've got a large if you've got most of your population unexposed and therefore not immune now how do you let people back into your country and tourism is a very big issue in mongolia especially in the summer around the nardam time so it'd be very interesting to see if that you know what they've what they thought of you know what they're thinking about in terms of doing that and I think this is something that, uh, you know, in in the States even, that's going to be an issue because we've got these hotspots in New York and L.A. And in the middle, in the sort of flyover part, there's much less of it. And so how do you undo these restrictions uh, when you've got a big population in Iowa or someplace that is not immune and hasn't been exposed? That's a great question, David. Um, and just to jump on top of that, um, we're talking about travel and, and attractiveness to go to different locations. I imagine that the governments of countries that are heavily dependent on travel, such as Spain, Italy, lots of places in Europe, yeah. Hawaii, hotspots where people love to travel to. What are they going to do to assure, reassure people that it's okay to travel there? I imagine there's going to be a lot of government support uh, to get to attract tourism. Um, Jonathan, have you heard anything on this? Are you hearing anything yet or is it too early? Yeah, I, I, th- I think James, it, it, it frankly is, is, is still a bit early. Um, I mean, we are, we are, um, part of a, a conglomerate of agencies. So we're part of a network. Um, so we do have, um, almost daily conference calls with all the other agencies that are part of the network just really to keep each other updated on on progress, where we're seeing any potential uh, growth um, opportunities. And I think right now it still is is pretty early days, but I think it is good to see that um, a lot of our hotel partners, 
um, and airline partners are, are keeping us very up to date with what they are doing in preparation for the return. Um, and I think that is going to be, as I say, that's going to be a big part of it, whereby um, I think customers are going to want to have some sort of uh, reassurance that, you know, where I'm going, uh, they really are um, taking care of us and making sure that um, we will uh, we be well looked after. But I think, again, to, to my, my point, I think once, uh, once an area is deemed safe and, and we start seeing, um, you know, uh, them wanting to get customers coming back, the governments are going to have a huge part to play in this, uh, for sure. They are going to have to, you know, reassure travelers that they're, they're going to be safe when they get here. But I also think, you know, again, it's going to take some time, as Professor Warburton was saying, I mean, how do you uh, identify that somebody is safe to travel? Um, and I think that is, to me, is how you're going to, there's going to have to be some sort of um, process in place whereby um, individuals who um, I, th- I can't remember the name of the movie. I think it was it was it Contagion. I think the movie was Contagion with Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, I watched it a couple of years ago, and that was a movie which was it, it, it's quite um, eerie. Um, how this movie was was basically about a um, a virus that broke out in in Hong Kong, and effectively um, it, it spread across the world. But in that movie. Um, they did come out up with a cure, and the one thing they did was that when somebody had a cure, they gave them this this barcoded bracelet, which basically said, "Well, you've now had the inoculation, so you're good." Um, and that's how they then controlled um, access or people being able to enter certain places because right. they'd had that inoculation. And uh, well, I mean, I know it's it's a kind of a wild idea, but Professor Warburton, is that well, something well, it's, that happened? I mean, if you want, well, if you want to travel to darkest Africa these days, I mean, you have to have a, le- a yellow fever card, don't you? Right. And right. so that's the sort of model. The, the challenge is if you don't have a yellow fever vaccine for COVID yet, right? Right. So if you, if, I mean, if I've been up here in Larkinyada self-isolating, I'm COVID negative, right? But then how do I reintroduce myself into a place that's a hotbed of COVID, right? That's, that's the question in the absence of a vaccine. So I think if we have a vaccine, it's all good. You can get your vaccine, you can measure your antibodies and off you go. The, the, I think the challenge is going to be if we don't have something that proves you against this. And the, the other consideration is that, um, you know, if you th- this is going to happen every... Seven, five to seven years, there's going to be something. You know, that's about the periodicity of SARS and Ebola and those kind of things. So it's something that we need to have some kind of resilience built, better resilience built into our into our systems. And I'm actually, just a side, bar, side note, I'm actually supposed to be in Italy at the moment doing a sabbatical there in Florence at the Children's Hospital. That hasn't happened, you know. A lot, of, a lot of, um, a lot of tough questions, and and some are hard to answer. And it is, it's just, it's early days yet. I, I think everyone wishes the best, and we want to come out on the other end of this. Um, sorry, you can't be in Italy right now, David. I think Fiona, you're supposed to be in uh, Bora Bora as well. Uh, both fantastic, beautiful locations. But don't worry, you'll get there soon. Um, we're coming towards the end of our conversation. Um, I wanted to throw out a couple of things myself. Obviously, we're probably all 
dreaming about what we want to do the moment we can come back out into the world. Uh, let's talk about travel. Where do you want to travel first after all of this? Fiona, do you have something in mind where you'd like to go? Well, I guess, um, yeah, I, I, I would be um, sitting on a beach in Bora Bora right now. Um, I mean, one of the, I guess the silver lining is instead I'm at home talking to you guys. So um, <laughs> there's always a bright side. But um, on, a, on a personal note, yes, I would like to reschedule um, my, my holiday. And, and then from a business perspective, I think as soon as, you know, it's, it's seemed safe and appropriate to do so, I think I would like to get out there and, and visit with, you know, some of our key clients to, to reconnect on a personal level and also to our, to our team members in, in the offices around, around the world and just, uh, you know, get, have that personal connection again and get people back in a room and, um, and back chatting. So, yeah, no travel for a while, which is unusual for me, but I do think that once, once kind of the skies are open again, then uh, lots of travel on the horizon. Fantastic. Dr. Warburton, how about yourself? Italy sounds lovely. Well, I, I uh, need to go back to Blighty, actually. Okay. I've got some stuff to do in London, in London with a colleague there. And uh, yeah, that's that'll probably be the next item on the agenda. Fantastic. Jonathan, how about yourself? Well, um, Blighty definitely on the cards. Um, similar to, to uh, Fiona, I, uh, I have a, a, a very large client in New York and I'd love to get back out there just to, to, to see them and, and talk about, you know, how we can, uh, we can get them back into the skies. Um, but certainly uh, we were supposed to return last Saturday from Paris because uh, we were going to take the kids for, <laughs> for a week in Paris. We're going to spend a week in Canada as well. Um, so we definitely want to go back to the plan we had, which was to, to visit both Canada, the UK, and Paris. Um, but what, one last thing I wanted to just say, James, is, you know, we, we are, what I do now, I work with a travel management company and we, we handle both um, corporate and leisure business. But I have been helping out a lot of my mates, both in the UK and the US, who have booked, you know, booked online or booked through an airline directly. And, and some of the challenges that the airlines are having, which everybody can understand, is that they're having to, uh, they're taking calls, but they're having challenges like for example call centers closing down because somebody uh, is positive for COVID-19 I know one of the larger international airlines had that the other day um, we are available 24-7 so even if you did book it directly with the airline or you uh, you booked it yourself online listen drop me a line because I'm always you know I want to help out the British community so even if you didn't book it with us drop me a line and I'll see what we can do. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And uh, yes, my family and I were big fans of the Bahamas. We regularly travel back to <laughs> Europe as well. And um, we'll be there again soon. I know we will. Um, thank you so much, everybody involved uh, in our business travel podcast today. My name is James Langridge. I'm the president of the British American Business Council, Los Angeles. I wish everybody to stay safe and stay positive. We will get through this. Thank you.